Good morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I was just like, man, you guys keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I was back there dancing because there's no cameras and no one can see me. And, uh, you know, you've never seen me dance, but let me just tell you, it's how I got Jenny to say yes, okay? All right, you don't even know what's inside of all this man, okay? And so I want to welcome you to Encounter Church today. I'm so glad you're here. Um, as Jason alluded to earlier, we're going to continue our series that we kicked off last week called Love Life. And um, if you were here last week, you picked a great week to show up to Encounter Church. If you weren't here, I would encourage you, um, Jason alluded to the app. Inside the app, you can go, by, go back and actually listen and engage with last week's message um, because it set the tone for what we're going to talk about the rest of this month. And really, it set the tone for what we're going to talk about the entire fall. It was that kind of message. And, um, and so I just encourage you at some point, set aside this week, go back and dip into what we engaged with, and you'll kind of see how the next few weeks flows out of that message. Because what I want to do is I want to set the tone, inspire, and then I want to shift gears and get a little bit more practical in the next three weeks around this idea of love life. Um, because we all have a love life, even if you don't feel like there's much life in your love. And what does it look like to shift and to move towards a love life that is God's ideal for you, and a love life that is life-giving. It's not the, this draining, defining part of your life. It's this part that's filling and flowing. And I appreciate so many of you last week, before we jump in, just your willingness to engage with us in the app, because we've set aside some, um, some assessments for you that we've gotten certified to be able to do, and these aren't like Facebook, you know, what's my spirit animal's color, and those ridiculous things. Like, this is an actual assessment that can really clearly define some of the pressure points and some of the strong points in your relationship. And so whether you're about to get married, whether you're married, or whether you're about to throw your hands up and walk away, those assessments can be truly transforming for you. So for those who signed up last week, thank you. You took a first step and a journey towards strengthening your relationship. And for those who are interested, even as I'm talking about it, because this is your first week, those assessments, the, kind of the path to get started is inside the app where it says step up. And you'll say, hey, I've got these three different levels. You just click one. Let us know, hey, I want to take steps in strengthening my relationship, and we'll start the conversation with you as well. Um, today, I recently came across um, this really compelling story um, actually, it was an after-actions report. It was a conversation inside of NASA about uh, the Columbia orbiter, um, its re-entry in February 2003. For those who were alive or familiar with what happened that day above Texas as the Columbia space shuttle was re-entering Earth's atmosphere after it had wrapped up construction project with International Space Station, Houston engaged with conversation, notices that all of a sudden uh, Columbia starts to get silent. You can hear it in the audio, it's, it's, it's eerie. All right, Columbia, come in. Columbia Orbiter, come in. Houston, come in. It's just silent. Because while Houston was broadcasting to Columbia, Columbia was disintegrating in air. About 80,000 pieces of debris fell from Texas to Louisiana as Columbia began to disintegrate. The reason Columbia disintegrated what they found as they began to do their inspection was tied to what happened at launch. As Columbia's space shuttle was taking off, a little piece of foam about the size of a briefcase fell off the external tank, and as it fell, it clipped the wing and broke a piece of foam off the wing. 
too. Now, a briefcase piece of foam may sound pretty large, but in reality, the space shuttle, the actual orbiter itself, is about 122 feet long. It's about 78 feet wide from wing to wing, and about 57 feet tall when it sits on a runway. So a briefcase size of foam isn't that big when you consider that the entire orbiter is wrapped in foam. And yet what happened is that as that shuttle was re-entering, the piece that had broken off allowed the 22,000 degree temperatures to start to melt the internal part of the left wing and it started to melt the space shuttle from the inside out. And it was this devastating tragic thing in the aftermath, they, they came out with a term that when I heard it, I instantly thought about this series. They were saying, well, actually what most people don't realize is that there are tens of thousands of reasons that a space shuttle launch can be aborted or terminated. And one of them is if a piece of foam breaks off the orbiter. That if the orbiter loses any piece of foam, it should be instantly canceled and brought back down. But what had happened is that before Columbia, the other shuttles had taken off, and each time those shuttles had taken off, they'd noticed pieces of foam were being hit and lost. And the first time they reacted, they're like, oh, is this bad? Oh, you know, this is technically a, a do not launch or an abort procedure, and nothing happened. The next time it happened, a piece of foam, they're like, well, remember last time nothing happened. It was okay. And they let it come back down, and didn't do anything. It kept happening over and over and over and over again. So eventually what developed inside the culture of NASA was this phrase that they used in the aftermath called a deviancy of the normal. See what had happened was normal had been clearly defined. Normal was if any piece of foam comes off, the mission is stopped. And what had occurred over launch after launch was NASA had drifted away from what was normal. They deviated. They kept shifting. And they kept getting comfortable with new norms. And as they kept sliding into that deviancy, the new norms became dangerous. So eventually, it took the lives of those seven astronauts who were on that shuttle as it was re-entering. And when I heard that phrase, deviancy of the normal, I said, that's it. That's what happens in so many relationships. It's relationships were never intended to take the heat and the pressure that oftentimes we think is normal in our relationships. And what happens is that many, many relationships get burned up re-entering that type of atmosphere. And why? Because we deviated from the normal. We had an idea when we stood at the altar and we said, I do. We had an excitement when we first met them, and we thought, man, they have everything I thought I ever wanted. And then over time, we start to deviate, and we start to move away, and it's a slow, incremental fade that ultimately can end up destroying and burning up a relationship. And I want to talk today, because this isn't a new idea, this is something Paul who was one of the most famous Christians, one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament. He authored most of the books in the New Testament, which is the Christian um, kind of second volume of what's called the Bible. Paul recognized this tendency, this deviation of the normal. And so he writes letters oftentimes addressing these churches he helped to start 
who had drifted away from normal. And one of these churches specifically had completely deviated from the normal of what relationships were supposed to look like. There was a lot of self-centeredness. It was a city that was defined by its economic wealth. It was culturally elite. There were this kind of margin in Roman life at the time where a lot of self-centered, me-centered tendencies started to drift in. And what happened was that had become their normal. And their normal of relationships crept into the church and they started to treat one another the way they thought normal was. And in his letter to the church in ancient Greek Greece today, the city of Corinth, this letter gets written, and over the course of a few chapters, Paul addresses how they treat each other. And in the midst of this addressing of multiple chapters where he's engaging them with all these different deviations of normal, he does something really helpful for us. He takes a step back and he defines what normal actually is. You see, if you don't have normal defined, it's really easy to slip away from it. And we live in a culture that's constantly trying to define what love is. It's constantly seeking to shift the standards of what love looks like. And Paul sees this same tendency in the church in Corinth. And what does he do? He writes this letter. And in the midst of 11 and 12, these, these chapters where he's unpacking and engaging and challenging the way they treat each other, he drops one of the most poetically beautiful chapters in the entire New Testament. A chapter that even if this is your first time in church period, I would wager money that you've probably heard some of the words from it before. Because it creeps into kind of popular culture. It finds itself into novels, into love songs, into cracker barrel prints. I mean, it's everywhere. It's this subtle kind of insidious thing that kind of people grabbed hold of it because historians and scholars believe it's one of the most beautiful chapters Paul ever wrote. And it's the chapter that we call 1 Corinthians 13, this love chapter. And it really is a poem dedicated to love. And it's in the middle of Paul addressing and discussing what normal is supposed to look like and how they deviated from it. He says, I'm just going to stop this conversation and I'm going to define it for you. I'm going to define clearly for you what love looks like so that you can start to live it out. And for our conversations coming out of last week, I think it's really appropriate, no matter where you are, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're processing in the aftermath of divorce, it's good to step back and to say, okay, what is normal? What is love? Right? I almost went foreigner on you for a second, and I I restrained myself, because I about about, just, I want to know what love is. (laughs) Sorry. I was like listening to that song this week. I was like... No, shut up. Okay. And so, like, he's like, I want to know what love is. Here's what love is. This is it. And he lays out in chapter 13 a picture of love that I think can actually be really helpful for you and I because those defining characteristics are still the defining characteristics of love today. And they have the power, no matter where you are, what stage, no matter what season, they have the power to transform how you view love and how you engage with love because love isn't just a romantic thing. Love is a life thing. And love across the board is meant to look like what Paul lays out for us. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-7, through those are the verses I want to focus in on today. He says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, 
and always perseveres. These famous words that Paul writes are translated into English, but Paul did not write these words the first time in English. He writes to the church in Corinth in almost 2,000 years ago in the language of Greek, which is the New Testament language, specifically Koinonia. And, and in this Greek letter, Paul does some radical things that we can miss just reading it on the English level. It's so radical, in fact, that it's worth camping out. Because when I tell you that Paul was seeking to define love, that's not me reading into the text. This is Paul dramatically, brilliantly doing some things to communicate his elevation of what love is. First of all, Paul takes a word that was not even popular, not even commonly used at the time to describe love. You see, the Greeks had a, a lot of words for love. In our English language, we have one word for love. So I can love Taco Bell. I can love my hamster. I can love my daughter. I can love my wife. I can love the patriots. And only some of them are the same kind of love. But you wouldn't know necessarily on the surface because I use the same word. The Greeks had nuanced versions. They would talk about love in one way that had one frame and they would use a specific word. So they would have a word for that passionate, kind of like physical type of love. And then they would have that like brotherly, sisterhood kind of love defined and that general disposition towards love. And one of the words that was com uh, kind of common in the day was phileo and phileo, and it started to shift. In fact, it had kind of become the general word for love, and then it has started to drift towards, um, in the common tongue, being uh, being considered like kissing. And so, the, even their definition in the Greek culture, love had started to shift because it was getting more me-centered, it was getting more physically oriented. And so, Paul does something. He's like, the words that this society has for love doesn't work. And so he grabs this other word that had been sitting on the sidelines, this word that had only been used a few times. It wasn't a really popular word in Greek language at the time. It was this word agape. And Paul grabs this word agape, which also meant love, and he brings it over and he uses it as the vessel to start shoving the new definition of love inside of it. So you may have heard of agape if you grew up in church or around church, but agape in first century did not mean what it means now. The reason it means what it means now is because Paul takes it like an empty vessel and he starts to shove the words that I just read inside of it. He says, I need to give you what normal really is. I want to give you a new definition of love that's accurate and that's true. And this is to be the standard in how you treat one another. And he doesn't just use the word agape, which is a radically new word for love in this context. He does something else that we can miss in the English. He writes all of these different statements, so there's seven positive, eight negative, all 15 of them are verbs. You don't see that in the English, right? It says love is patient, love is kind. You can easily skim and skip over and not see the action Paul had loaded into that. It's, patient is a hard word to make a verb in the English language, right? But for Paul, in the Greek, he had this ability to take patience and make it a verb. He gets to kindness, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that word in a second. He actually makes that word up. That word did not exist. And Paul is like, I want to I capture this. So he's like pulling words together in the Greek language, and he's like doing mashups and creating new phrases and new words and new verbs to describe what love is. Paul is trying to set forth for the church at the time like, this thing called love is completely different than what you think it is. 
And he chooses to activate and to use seven uh, verb phrases in the positive and seven verb phrases in the negative because I think primarily Paul was trying to speak to a culture that had kind of become self-consumed, that had become completely oriented around emotions and feelings. And he was trying to make a point to them that love is a verb. It is not an emotion, it's an action. This is something that wasn't just a struggle in Corinth. I would actually argue that it's even more of a struggle of ours today. That oftentimes when we speak of the word love, we use it in an emotional way. We think love is primarily an emotion. And Paul, when he's trying to define it, actually says, no, love is not an emotion, it's an action. Our culture, if you listen to love songs, um, a lot of times what the love songs really are kind of keyed in on is what I would call is infatuation. Infatuation is just a chemical high. right? Infatuation, I mean, if you th- just kind of skim through most of the love songs today, and it's like how you make me feel, the way you look, the way you smell, what I want to do to you, kind of mash all those together, and it becomes a new song with a new beat. But that's kind of the common theme. It's infatuation. And the danger with infatuation is infatuation is, is blinding. So think back to that moment you first met her or him. Right? And you would be like, oh, but, oh, you should, oh, my goodness, he is so awesome. It's like he just drifts through life. Like he's not stressed or worried about anything. Like he's not caught up in like his calendar or his schedule. Like he just lives life freely. I love that about him. He has no restraints in life. Then you hit fast forward and it's all of a sudden, he is a bum. He doesn't show up on time. He can't keep his word. He's not dependable. I'm like, what's your problem? You need to grow up. I know, but when you got infatuation, you got those blinders on and it's like, oh, it's so awesome. How he just floats through life. And now with the blinders removed, You're like, if you don't get out of bed, right? We do that. We get caught up in the things that we know deep down inside. We did not like when we first met them. Our emotions cover it up. And we think, oh, it's so great. Or, oh, it's just, they'll grow out of that. You know, when we get married, they'll, they'll grow up. No, they won't. The best you get on display is when you're dating. How you see them when you date is the prettier version of what you get when you're married. My wife probably thought it was charming and endearing that I was a messy slob when we dated. When we got married, she probably considered that it could be a justifiable defense in court. Right? I mean, it's one of those subtle things that happens. And Paul recognizes that emotions... They're they're like the cherry on top of the sundae. They're not the ice cream. But if you make it the end-all be-all, then it doesn't really stand up to life because what scientists have documented time and time again is the chemical high typically associated with infatuation lasts about two years after marriage, and then it starts to drain out. And all of a sudden, the squeezing the toothpaste or the way they load the dishwasher or the way their clothes cannot seem to hit the dirty clothes hamper but lays right beside the dirty clothes hamper as if somehow you're airing it out because you may go back to it again, right? 
All these little things that you didn't think were a big deal before starts to become frustrating. You're like, can you not remove, can you not pick your cup up and take it to the sink? Or have you ever heard of a coaster? Like, good gracious, who raised you, right? I mean, all these things just start to spill out and these cute little things about them start to become annoyances. And because love is not built and is not intended to run on infatuation and chemical emotion. And to say it another way, emotions are really good gauges on the car, but they're not the engine. They don't get you very far. They'll get you about two years at best, and then you're stalled out on the side of the road. And Paul is trying to introduce to these people this idea of a deeper thing than just infatuation. He's trying to introduce them a picture of love that can be transformative, one that's built on intentional actions. And that's why Paul spends so much of his time making sure that every one of these words are verbs. Not emotional words. They're verbs. They're actions. Because one of the secrets to mature love is when you first start dating, you first get married, um, you especially culturally, we get told this, that like love is a feeling. That's why you hear people say, I just don't know if I feel like I love them anymore. I'm like, what the heck does that even mean? That's not love. You mean you don't feel the chemical feelings you used to feel before. That's what you mean. They don't make you high like they used to. But you, you don't fall out of love. That's not how love works. If love was an emotion, it would. But if it was an action, it's something you walk into and you do. Not something you fall out of. Okay? And that's where emotions make good gauges, but they make horrible engines. And a sign of mature love is when you start to move from this immature mark where what typically happens in the early seasons of a relationship is emotion preceded action. The emotion made you want to go do that. So I need like eight or nine hours of sleep. I don't know about any of you, but I am not a night owl. I can't do all-nighters. Um, I married a girl who doesn't require much sleep. She needs like six. I need like eight or nine. And when we first started dating, I was just tired for two years. <laughs> but it was worth it because I got to see her. And I got to hang out with her. And I got to spend time with her. Like, it was okay then. Like it was, it was, those emotions helped me to push through because we would have never ended up marrying each other had those emotions not gotten me over that, that hump of like waking up in the morning and just being perennially tired for two straight years. But what happens is as you mature, you start to shift over and it, you get to the second stage, which is actually a richer, deeper stage, but it requires action. It's where action precedes emotion. And it's different. You see, when we're dating, if Jenny would say, oh, go walk out in the blizzard. I forgot my sweater from the car. I'm cold. It'd be like, yes, I will do that for you. And I will sing love songs as I go. Right? The emotion would have welled up inside. Now, married, and it's blizzard coming out. She's like, oh, I forgot my sweater in the car. And I'm kind of cold. Could you go get that? I'm like, woman, we got blankets all over this house. What do you need that sweater for? Like, there's nothing inside of me that wants to go walk outside and sing my way to the car to get that sweater. Because I'm in this stage now. And so what do I have to do? I'm like, okay. So I go, and I have to make a very critical life choice. I have to decide, 
can I run fast enough that I don't have to completely redress myself in like winter gear? Do I want to risk it? Or do I want to waste the time of having to get redressed to go find the sweater? So I usually ask clarifying question, where is the sweater? And if it's, I'm not sure, I think it could be in the trunk or the front seat. You know, maybe it's in the back seat. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna redress and then I'll go out. And, and this typically, you know, I walk out and I grab it and the entire time I am not happy about it. I'm like, I'm cold. I'm like, why couldn't that woman just go get another sweater? Why couldn't she just get another blanket? And I, I get the sweater and I walk up, I'm shivering and I give it to her. She's like, I love you. You are the sweetest, kindest. And she starts rubbing my little bald spot. My legs are shaking. And I'm like, that's right, girl. You want something else from the car? I got you. I got you, girl. I'll go get something else you don't even need. But that's what happens. The action precedes the emotion. And what's cool is the emotion on the backside is even richer and fuller. And it's even better on this side. But that's a sign of maturity. And some of us walk into those situations and we think it's a sign of our relationship falling apart when it's actually a sign of your relationship deepening and growing and developing and that your feelings don't precede your action. Because that's not a very good way to build a relationship. And we get this. If you're a parent, you learn fairly early on that emotions cannot drive healthy relationship because a child gives you nothing for the first 25 years in life. <laughs> They just take things from you. And oftentimes, they make you feel negative emotions you've never felt before and intensities that you never knew you were capable of. But why? Because something about that moment when they're placed in your hand, there's a sense of commitment that wells up inside of you, this choice that says, I am all they have. And you choose over the emotion to love them. You choose over the emotion not to lock them out of the house and not let them back in. Right? And, and this is something that we get in other areas, but we forget it's true about our love relationship inside. And that there is a warning if, for those who are single, teenagers, wherever you are in life stage and age, that Song of Solomon, this book that you were not even allowed to read until you were 13, um, if you were a Jewish boy or a girl growing up, because it was so like loaded with imagery, and it was pretty intense, like sexually explicit. And... Um, but there is a warning throughout it when you're reading this thing for the first time as a 13, 14-year-old Jewish boy or girl. And what you see in it is this constant refrain of be careful about your emotions because they'll blind you. So don't go all into the emotions until it's wise to do so. Because Song of Solomon, written almost 3,000 years ago, recognized that emotions make really good gauges, but they make horrible engines. And if you allow them they will take you into some pretty devastating places and they will completely blind you to some of the things that you need to be seeing early in to that relationship. And a great question is, when you start to date someone, do they make you want to be a better version of you? Do they want to be a better version of themselves because of you? It's just a really simple, subtle thing, but Jenny makes me want to be a better man. I want to be a better man because of her. And I wake up daily, and I fail a lot, but I strive to be better because she's worth it. Not because I feel like I need to be better, but because I see the quality and the characteristic of who she is as a woman. And I feel like I need to elevate my game to be able to step on the field with her. 
And does the person that you're dating make you want to do that? Do they awaken something inside of you that says, I need to be better at life? And this sets the stage for what Paul does where he says patience and kindness. He makes up this word called kindness. It's not merely good intentions. This, this word he creates is like intentionally good. It's this like benevolent, like you're sitting around scheming and planning ways to leverage your life for their good and their life. It's this idea that everything I have, I'm going to use it to make your life better, richer, deeper, and fuller. That that's what love looks like. It's not about how you make me feel. It's not about all the things you do for me. As C.S. Lewis said, love is not an affectionate feeling, but it's a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be contained. And it's about leveraging your entire life to accomplish it. And so a little random fact about me, I turned 40 in less than 40 months. And if you were to get inside my head, you realize that um, I have identified 40 things that I want to see happen before I turn 40. Okay? I'm weird. I get it. But one of those things in that little list of mine, there's, there's a series of those items that are completely focused on my wife and my daughter. Because that list of 40 things that I want to see in my life is not about what I want to have. It's about how I want to use my life before I turn 40 to leverage their lives. Because I recognize that I might not make it to 40. So what can I do in the next 40 months that I have on planet Earth to make sure that I build them up? Because I think when I look at this passage, that's what love looks like. It's about leveraging your life for their good. And all of the phrases, the seven positive and the eight negative, all speak to the central theme of this warning against being selfish and self-centered. All of it, where it's like, do not envy, do not boast, do not be proud, proud, be kind, be like all of this, not easily angered. All of these are, are about this centralized warning that what happens when you're fueled by emotion, when, when love is that thing for you, then love tends to be something that's self-centered, it's transactional. If they make me feel good, I'll do something for them. If I like the way they're treating me, I'll be nice to them. If they're being kind to me, I'll be kind to them. But if they're being mean to me, if they're being snarky with me, then I'm going to do it back. I've watched enough marriages and relationships burn up in atmospheres to tell you that the number one fuel that causes the explosion is selfishness. And this is what Paul is pointing to here. Selfishness destroys relationships. And it's not bold, blatant selfishness. Oftentimes it's the little subtle, small things. The little tiny ways where you're inconsiderate of their calendar and their life and their rhythm and what they asked you to do. It's the small things of not even wondering or worrying about what they're dealing with. All you can see is all the struggles and challenges you have in your life. They, they may lift up their hand to help you, but you never even want to think to lift up your hand and help them. It's the little subtle ways of wanting to protect your own ego and they say something that hurts you and what do you do instead of listening to understand that maybe there's some truth in that you need to hear because none of us are perfect and God's greatest gift in relationships is someone up close to us who is for us, who sees the best and the worst of us, who helped us to become that better version of ourselves. But yet, if you're self-centered, then when you hear that, what happens is you want to rise up, lash out. You blow up. 
You react, whether emotionally, verbally. Your reaction may be aggressive or it may be passive and you slide back. You say, I won't make them pay for that. I'm not going to talk to them for the next four hours and see how they like that. Because you know what? You don't have to scream to get someone back. You can just sit at a dinner table with them and not say a word. Sometimes that works just as well as a fight. And why? Because it's about me and the pain they just caused me and I'm going to make them pay for it. And this danger of self-centeredness, Paul recognizes can destroy relationships. So when he pushes them, he says, look, this is what love looks like. It's about you leveraging your life. And he pairs this word patience and kindness and it's brilliant. Patience, it's one of the first times that patience gets used. The only time before is typically patience is applied to um, God and how God is patient. In the Old Testament, God's, one of the images they would use for God's patience was a long nose. And it's because if you've ever had a parent that you've made angry, you could tell. Like I could watch my mom and her breathing to know when I was about to cross the line because you would see. And when the moment they stopped breathing in and they started breathing out, you better start running because your life's about to end. You ever had those moments where you just know you're like, oh, it's about to come, right? The idea in the Hebrews, they had this word picture that God's patience, he just kept breathing in. When he should breathe out and he should bring the hammer down, when he should punish, he kept breathing in. And the way the Hebrews would describe it is they would say God had a long nose because he could just keep sucking in air when most people would blow out and blow up. And Paul takes that and he uses it here. But he doesn't use it to talk about God. He uses it to talk about love and how we're supposed to love. So not only is this image of love pretty, pretty dark the moment you step in, it's this image of someone who is being annoyed by someone, which is somewhat like marriage at times. And instead of lashing out, they keep breathing in. And what are they doing as they're breathing in? He, he makes up a word that we call kindness in the English text. And he says, while you're breathing in, you're just like God because instead of responding and repaying, you, you respond in a way that's for their good. Like you're intentionally good to them even when they are causing you to have to be patient. And I would say for some of you, if you want a picture of how well you love, look at the worst moments of your relationship, not the best moments. Because we can easily fall into the trap of saying, I have good intentions. And what Paul says is, quit measuring your love by the way you think your good intentions qualify. Measure your love by how intentionally good you are regardless of how they're treating you. Like He just ratchets this thing up to a level that's Insane. But let me ask you this. Would you want to be in a relationship like that? Would you want to have someone in your life that this is how they love? I do. And that to be worthy of that, I have to do it too. That this thing works best when both come together and do it apart. Because I can hear some of you, you don't understand how selfish they are. But what if I'm pouring out myself? What if I'm doing all these things and I don't get anything in return? then I would say you're still missing it. You're still thinking transactionally. It's not about what they give you back in return. It's about a commitment that you have for their good. One of my mentors early in, it was this, we were talking about a guy who'd mentored him and how his wife had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and how he would love and serve her. And he'd just been with them that day and he's like, he's talking about being over there and how when he pulled up, 
um, Robertson was like weeping and he was like, hold on a second. And he ran outside and he flipped up the flag on his mailbox. And he came back in the house. He said, sorry, I just, I had to do that. And he's like weeping. Adrian's like, what in the world's going on? Well, he's like, well, she's been in this, her, her disease has just continued to progress and now she's, she doesn't remember me. And so when I go in to change her diapers, sometimes she's afraid of me, sometimes she reacts, she's terrified. He said, but this time when I was changing her diaper and she looked at me, she, she recognized me. She remembered me. And so just as a, a subtle way, because I, I want people, our neighbors to know today's a good day, I just I flipped the mailbox flag up so that people know that today she remembered me. And Adrian's like, like his level of love just completely blew up. He's like, I, I don't have a box for what you're talking about. Because he was like, how, how, what do you, how do you do this? He was like, what do you mean how do I do this? I love her. He's like, but she doesn't even recognize you anymore. He's like, but that doesn't mean I don't get to love her. Even if she doesn't know how I'm loving her, I still know how I get to love her. And so I love her. I do it for her. Not because of what she's done for me, but if you wanted to pull out a spreadsheet, she has way out loved me in all the decades of our relationship before. And this is my privilege. This is not my problem. And that for many of us, that's the type of love that Paul elevates to us and calls us towards. And it doesn't have anything to do with how you're being treated. It's all around how you choose to treat them. And so let's just get real for a second. In September 2013, the Houston Astros, one of the worst team in baseball, are playing Cincinnati Reds. It's the first inning. They're already down by four, and they seek. Uh, Biller here seeks to turn his single into a double. And while he's sprinting towards first base, he slips up, and he does what is infamously now called the butt slide. Biller meets the anus of the second baseman. No one remembers the 10-point difference of that game the Astros lost. This image became the picture of the Houston Astros in the entire season they had because they were the worst team in baseball. They couldn't even steal a base correctly for crying out loud. This thing bounced around on ESPN. It turned into a gif where his head just kept doing this back and forth. It is mesmerizing. It is a phenomenal way to pass time. It's just bam, 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 bam. And what's extraordinary is this is September 2013. By September 2017 and October 2017, you're looking at the World Series champions. And for some of us, your relationship is that. It is an epic butt slide. And this is what it feels like every day. You're like, oh my goodness, that is totally what my, I would have never called my relationship a butt slide, but it is a butt slide. Yes, but your relationship doesn't have to stay that way. It doesn't have to linger in this place. The Houston Astros demonstrated that you can have a butt slide and then three, four years later, wear a World Series champion ring. You don't have to stay where you are. 
And that the step towards becoming and experiencing the type of love God intended you to have is to first go back to the very basic and to say, like foreigner, like what is love? What is it? What does it look like? And to say love is not an emotion, it's an action. That love is not just simply what I feel, it's a verb that I do. And that love has nothing to do with me. It's not about me. It's not what I get out of this thing. It's about me showing up daily with an opportunity to demonstrate and to do. And that when two people wake up every single day committed to that kind of mission, it is the best, richest, amazing relationship that only keeps getting better with time. And that that type of commitment can lead you to have a world-class relationship. And the reason I know this, the reason Paul can write this, is that Paul writes this knowing that his life had been transformed by love too. One of the scholars, multiple scholars have commented how you can take love and replace it with the name Jesus in 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not envious. He does not boast. He's not prideful. Jesus always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. And the reason that you can use love and Jesus interchangeably is because they are. Jesus was the walking definition of love. That He leveraged His life for our good so that we could have hope. That His standard of love is the standard of love. And it's the standard that Paul draws from when he writes and he constructs this incredible chapter that we find in, verse, in chapter 13 and verses 4-7. through seven. And that that type of love sets a stage and a standard for, for an experience that you and I can't even begin to imagine. It's how we can demonstrate grace and forgive in the midst of hard times. It's how we can be patient and keep breathing in knowing that God had so patiently breathed in with us when we didn't deserve it. That God was good even when we didn't have any good intentions towards Him. And that Paul ratches and presses and pushes this idea of love higher and higher and higher. So I want to give you two quick things and then the band's going to come out. If you want to start moving towards that, I've got a, a safe thing to do and a hard thing to do. The safe thing is in the app. It's a way of putting love into motion, and it's a very simple way, but it it's, can be powerful. And for some of you, maybe, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but it's this idea of love languages, of how you demonstrate love, how you show love in a way that they receive it. Because oftentimes what happens is we want to show love, but then the way we're showing love is not the way the other person receives love. So my love language would be physical touch. That's why when my wife rubs my bald spot and I shake my leg, I'm good. Like, I am like the easiest person to love. You rub my bald spot, tell me good boy, good job. I'm like, all right, awesome, high five. If I tried to rub my wife's head and tell her good job, that doesn't work. My wife measures love, T-I-M-E, N-T-A-L-K, okay? Time and talk. And so for, for my wife, if I'm on the couch beside her and I'm talking to her, she just feels so loved. If... She wanted to sit down beside me and talk to me. I, I don't measure that as love. I'm an introvert. I don't like talking. And, and quality time is not even remotely on my top five list. It's just not. But that's how she measures it. My daughter is gifts. I'm not. 
She loves gifts. When I come back from a trip, she's like, what'd you bring me? I'm like, me. I made it. I'm alive. Congratulations. Right? No, no. She was like, what, what did you give me? Why? Because that's her love language. And you need to know the love language of the person that you want to do life with. You need to know the love language of you and your children. Because it has a power to transform your relationship. And the second thing, the harder thing, is to look at your spouse, your significant other, or your roommate if you're single, because I promise you, it's just as transferable. And to ask a question that I've said before, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Hey, I think it's awesome to be on the other side of me. But I'm willing to submit that maybe it's not. So what's it really like to be on the other side of me? And to not be willing to, to interrupt, to argue, to tell them they're wrong, but to listen, to take notes, to pay attention, and to say, okay, thank you. I'll start to work on that. If you're willing to do either one of those two steps today, you can start to move towards the ideal, the norm that God intended you to have. Let's pray.